You are listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Gil Parat. No conflicts of interest to report today. Rhabdomyolysis is the topic, and let's first break down the word into its three components to better understand its meaning. Rhabdo means rod, here I believe referring to the striated appearance of skeletal muscle. Myo is the medical term for muscle, and lysis is defined as the destruction of cells. I have heard several doctors say that a CK of only a thousand or so is not really rhabdomyolysis when someone comes in with a crush injury or muscle injury from cocaine or whatever etiology. Those doctors are not correct in my opinion. What they mean to say is that the degree of rhabdomyolysis with a creatinine kinase of a thousand or so won't cause renal failure. It would be true that low levels of rhabdomyolysis don't cause pigment nephropathy, but it's not correct in my opinion to say low levels of muscle breakdown are not rhabdomyolysis. It's still the destruction or myolysis of skeletal muscle cells, which is why you're seeing that CK elevated if it is a breakdown of the skeletal muscle cells and not something else like a myocardial infarction, in which case the CK elevation would be coming from cardiac muscle cells. And I do stress that is my opinion since there is no consensus on what rhabdomyolysis exactly is when describing it as a disease. And it often is not a disease since it can be normal in certain athletes. Different groups have used different CK cutoffs of either 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 to define rhabdomyolysis, but this seems somewhat arbitrary to me. Many call the condition of mild CK elevations with or without muscle symptoms of tenderness just myositis, and then once the CK level gets to 10 times the upper limit of normal, it suddenly has the term to define it switch from myositis to rhabdomyolysis, according to some groups that call their particular opinion an expert opinion. But those experts don't seem to be able to agree with themselves. Now, what are the common findings when rhabdo is an actual disease process? There's muscle pain, what we also call myalgias, but muscle pain is normal for us when we exercise hard, so we can't say it's specific for rhabdo in all situations. When I see rhabdo from drugs like statins, those people hurt in all their muscles, even the ones they aren't using much are also very tender. Limb weakness and even swelling can occur, though swelling is rare. On occasion, that swelling is so severe it apparently can cause compartment syndrome, and also compartment syndrome can cause rhabdomyolysis. Pigmenturia without hematuria always raises a red flag. The urine looks either a brown cola colored or can be cherry red or dark red or sometimes just pinkish. Remember to consider other possibilities like hemoglobinuria from intravascular hemolysis when also considering myoglobinuria. If there is a worsening anemia, that should particularly raise a suspicion. So, let's move on. What are the lab findings in rhabdomyolysis? Renal failure is one of the feared complications. I will get back to pigment nephropathy in a bit. One tip-off that myoglobinuria is present is when urine testing shows no actual blood cells present despite the dipstick being positive for blood. Metabolic acidosis is frequently seen, and that also can be a lactic acidosis, and lactic acid can be elevated. 
severe electrolyte abnormalities that can be life-threatening can very often be present. So I will get back to those towards the end when I discuss treatment. Increased liver function tests are noted, which really isn't liver function tests in the case of rhabdomyolysis. The amino transferases are released as part of the muscle breakdown. Both AST and ALT are also intramyocyte enzymes. Disseminated intravascular coagulation happens in the setting of rhabdomyolysis, and the laboratory findings that one associates with DIC can therefore be present. And then, of course, CK or creatine kinase is the test we most use to detect muscle breakdown. Now, the causes of muscle breakdown are many. Let's review just a few you will likely see. I see rhabdomyolysis fairly frequently from crush injuries, and that's particularly in the elderly or more particularly in alcoholics found down on hard surfaces like the ground for at least several hours. But those elderly patients who are down and they can't get up sometimes are there for a day or two and they get rhabdomyolysis. Alcohol in itself causes its share of muscle breakdown, as does cocaine and methamphetamine and other drugs. Seizures and electrical injuries are risk factors. Strenuous exercise is listed in every article and textbook review as an etiology. I know it happens, but how often do you see those patients? I'm not sure I've seen a single one that didn't have another confounding factor like a statin or Matthews or whatever. I realize it happens in some with just exercise, but think about how many marathon runners there are, how many ultra marathoners there are, triathletes, bodybuilders going to total failure and pushing muscles to their limit every day, and yet we so rarely see rhabdomyolysis causing pigment nephropathy in those populations. The rate of death from marathons is less than 1 in 50,000, and that is from all causes of death, including hyponatremia, infarctions, and rhabdomyolysis. And the reference on that is from the New England Journal of Medicine. April 14, 2005, there was a perspectives article called Marathon Maladies. If someone comes to the hospital with an elevated CK after a heavy workout, I don't think it's abnormal. If it does seem like clinically significant rhabdomyolysis and there's cola-colored urine or acute renal failure, I personally won't stop the workup there. Do they have influenza? Have they taken something like cocaine or are they on a statin? Do they have a muscle affliction like McArdle's disease or a form of muscular dystrophy? Do they have something common like hypothyroidism? If you see recurrent rhabdomyolysis, it's possible that person has a disease of muscle metabolism if it's happening after exercise. Send them to somebody who knows a lot about those things, which doesn't seem to be more than a small number of doctors. Now let's get back to exertional rhabdomyolysis from exercise since I claimed it can be a normal finding if you're defining rhabdomyolysis simply by CK levels. And let me try and defend that point since that is an important point to me since I do love exercise. They say it's the poor person's plastic surgery and it makes you look better naked. So it rocks for both you and your partner. Now let's say there's an athlete that has an ortho injury at the gym after a heavy workout, and the ER just happens to check a CK. Let's say that level of creatine kinase is 25,000, and the urine looks grossly normal. 
should the medicine service routinely admit that patient? There are lots of case reports and studies to prove my point that we don't have to freak out about elevated CK levels after exercise. There's a study titled Serum Creatine Kinase Levels and Renal Function Measures in Exertional Muscle Damage, and that was published in the journal Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise in 2006. The page number starts on is 623. They looked at CK levels after their study subjects performed hard preacher curls in the gym, which is a bicep exercise for those of you who don't do them. Most bodybuilders and gym rats have much longer and strenuous workouts than what would be expected from those subjects just doing hard preacher curls, and therefore, I'd expect, would routinely have much higher CK levels than this study found. What were the CK levels found in this study? Glad you asked, and I'm going to quote it. In the present study of 51 subjects, 25% had CK values greater than 10,000, a level used to diagnose rhabdomyolysis, and of these, 13% had values greater than 20,000, a level associated with renal failure in other studies, but no subject in the present study developed renal compromise. The results of the study support the hypothesis that marked creatine kinase and myoglobin elevations in response to exercise in healthy individuals are not sufficient to induce renal compromise. Additional situational or genetic factors such as underlying diseases, dehydration, supplement or drug use, environmental heat stress, or sickle cell trait may be required for exertional rhabdomyolysis to result in acute renal failure. That's the end of the quote from the study. And there are other studies showing triathletes having 12-fold mean increase in CK levels as long as 24 hours after the race. There's a article that you can find on the Internet from August 2008 from the journal Family Practice has a good summary of these matters and review called How Much Can Exercise Raise Creatine Kinase Level and Does It Matter? Again, what's the point of this? We need to treat clinical situations and not just numbers. If after a workout someone is peeing dark brown with full body aches and takes simvastatin, I would admit them for hydration if their CK level is 15,000. On the other hand, a healthy 200-pound bodybuilder with a post-workout CK of 20,000 who had their CK level checked for misguided reasons would not always concern me. I might just tell that person to save the drama for their mama. As someone engaged in the counterculture of bodybuilding for a few years, I'll bet a protein shake there likely has been many days my CK levels go well above 20,000, which has just given me a good idea for an exercise book I should write, The Rhabdo Challenge, or man up to rhabdomyolysis. Joking aside, it should be stated that subjectively some big names and elite levels of bodybuilding over the years do seem to need kidney transplants at rather early ages, and many speculate about the risky illegal supplementation that some of these athletes utilize as a possible etiology. And as a side note, I do want to give a podcast on sports supplements, if you can't tell, uh, the good and the bad sports supplements at some point. The reason I bring up the possible kidney issues in bodybuilding is that I do read about these athletes, and it's crossed my mind more than a few times that some of those who have had renal disease might be worsening their situation with chronic release of myoglobin, but I do not have 
evidence that is the case, just speculation. And that being said, many papers discuss how it is untrained athletes that do seem at higher risk for rhabdo and clinical consequences. So the guy who overexerts after not doing any exercise for a year is of more concern when it comes to acute risks. Some will recall the press given to the hospitalization of 13 University of Iowa football players this year in January of 2011 for rhabdomyolysis. And given how unusual a cluster of cases like that is, I wish I could learn more about what happened there. HIPAA will definitely prevent that from happening, and the press never really learned what happened to trigger that event. Again, as I mentioned, if somebody presents with rhabdo and adverse health consequences, I'm searching for other contributing factors. The reporters accepted that it was all from strenuous workouts, but who am I to second-guess that? There could have been other contributing issues that could have adversely affected the university program's stature. It also is important to note, per press reports, that all 13 players recovered without any long-term health issues. I'm sure only to go on and obtain chronic injury and pain issues from returning to the sport of football after they got out of the hospital. The playwright Merle Kessler said, Football players, like prostitutes, are in the business of ruining their bodies for the pleasure of strangers. Now, getting back to rhabdo and exercise, it's a bit scary because we just don't have good guidelines to tell us when exertional elevation of CK will be clinically important. In complicating matters, there are some case reports where exercise-induced rhabdomyolysis has been clinically significant, even though the person didn't exercise harder than usual. The triggering event could have been heat or going in a sauna after a workout. We also know heat stroke causes rhabdo, and that is obviously a very serious condition that we must consider with athletes, among other populations, presenting with elevated core temperatures. Clinical judgment and attention to disease processes and medications and illicit substance use and exam findings will continue to be very important in trying to tease out when we are seeing a disease process versus a normal variant of exercise. Time to talk about statins. One of my favorite comedians is Stephen Wright, who said, I drive way too fast to worry about cholesterol. And indeed, when you look at the numbers needed to treat for prevention of health events with statins, it can raise an eyebrow or two. A table of the number needed to treat for primary and secondary prevention of events with statins is published on page 401 of the June 2011 Cleveland Clinic of Medicine. In the worst-case scenario on that table, which is the MEGATRIAL, M-E-G-A, you needed to treat 119 patients to benefit a person with a statin. In the best-case scenario, the 4S study, a secondary prevention trial, the number needed to treat was 15. So check out that table because at times I think there are some doctors that seem to think stopping a statin is a death sentence. They are very important medications, and it's just that there are patients in which adverse events are not worth the potential benefit, but I digress. What is the most widely prescribed class of drugs worldwide? Statins. Not surprisingly, the incidence of statin myopathy in clinical trials does not mirror real-world experience of everyday clinical practice where it is much higher. Now, why is that? I want to quote the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine from June 2011, page 394. 
To minimize toxicity, the clinical trials of statins excluded patients with renal insufficiency, hepatic insufficiency, a history of muscular complaints, and poorly controlled diabetes, as well as patients taking drugs with other possible interactions. Large trials have excluded up to 30% of participants in active pure randomization phases. And that's the end of the quote. But for that reason, we have seen patients injured or die. For that reason, during post-marketing surveillance with Baycol, also remember it was called Cerevastatin, had to be pulled off the market. The risk of having muscle complaints in an outpatient real-world practice with statins may be up to 20% of patients. That's not meant to imply muscle complaints or rhabdomyolysis. They usually are not. Some of those muscle complaints may not even be from statin as an etiology, since you can't have other etiologies even while on a statin. Also, most patients with statin-induced muscle pain do have normal CK levels, and the reference on that is from the Annals of Internal Medicine 2002 in an article titled, Statin-Associated Myopathy with Normal Creatine Kinase Levels. The exact cause of statin-induced muscle injury is really not well understood at the moment, but I suspect somebody will give us better answers in the near future. What is more clear is statin toxicity causing rhabdomyolysis does seem to be dose-dependent, and likewise, there seems to be worse players among statins than others when it comes to muscle symptoms like rhabdomyolysis. Fluvastatin has a low incidence of both muscle-related symptoms and rhabdomyolysis, and my reference for that is the article titled Statin Myopathy, and that's from the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, published in June 2011. Coenzyme Q10 can help some patients resolve the symptoms of statin-induced myalgias, but it hasn't earned a place in the treatment of rhabdo as of this time. There is a interesting but small study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine, November 16, 2010, that showed supplementing creatine prevented myopathy in patients receiving statins. The authors state, and I'll quote them, Our data support the hypothesis that the decreased intramuscular creatine could be involved in the mechanism of statin-induced muscle toxicity, end quote. It's too early to know if creatine could influence the incidence or even the treatment of rhabdomyolysis, but it would be really interesting to me if somebody did study that someday. When it comes to rhabdomyolysis and lipid lowering, a very helpful study was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, December 1, 2004, and that was called The Incidence of Hospitalized Rhabdomyolysis in Patients Treated with Lipid-Lowering Drugs. And we learned that the combination of fibrate use with statins increased the risk of serious muscle breakdown. If you're on a fibrate-statin combination and have diabetes or older than 65, the risk of rhabdo was even higher. We also now know that other combinations of medications like cyclosporin, niacin, macrolides with statins can increase rhabdomyolysis. Lots of myotoxic medications, as well as illegal drugs, are associated with rhabdo besides statins. Lots of infections can cause rhabdo. And I'm not going to recite the long list of many causes, but don't focus solely on statins. Even though they get the most press and are important players in the arena, they are not the sole players. The feared outcome of rhabdo is acute renal failure and the potential of death that occurs with that. 
Acute renal failure will not happen to the majority of patients with rhabdo, and it is preventable much of the time. Myoglobin is filtered by the glomerulus and can obstruct the tubules, vasoconstriction from myoglobin, and free radical injury from the iron component of myoglobin likely contribute to kidney injury as well. Hyperuricemia happens as a result of muscle breakdown in some patients, and uric acid can also cause tubule obstruction. Water gets sequestered into injured and necrotic muscles, and that fluid shift can cause a pre-renal picture. So lots of reasons to get acute renal failure. While not totally unheard of, it's pretty rare to have acute renal failure from rhabdomyolysis when the creatine kinases are less than 10,000. Now, the treatment is aggressive repletion of volume with IV fluids. Many sources say we should be giving 1 to 2 liters each hour initially if the volume status is low. It seems like there is no topic in medicine that can't be without controversy. And with rhabdo and giving IV fluids, there is controversy as to whether adding bicarbonate is helpful or hurtful. Since I really don't know the answer to this, I will quote the New England Journal of Medicine at length on this topic, and that quote is from the July 2, 2009 review article titled, Rhabdomyolysis in Acute Kidney Injury. So here comes the quote. Some investigators recommend administering sodium bicarbonate, which results in an alkaline urine, whereas others argue against this approach and favor normal or half-normal saline solution. The three empirical advantages of alkalinization that have been noted have been based in studies on animal models of rhabdomyolysis. First, it is known that precipitation of protein myoglobin complex is increased in acidic urine. Second, alkalinization inhibits reduction-oxidation cycling of myoglobin and lipid peroxidation in rhabdomyolysis, thus ameliorating tubule injury. Third, it has been shown that metamyoglobin reduces vasoconstriction only in acidic medium in the isolated perfused kidney. The principal and probably the only disadvantage of alkalinization is reduction in ionized calcium, which can exacerbate the symptoms of the initial hypocalcemic phases of rhabdomyolysis. The clinical benefits of alkalinization as compared with simple volume repletion are not firmly established. Comparative studies usually have small sample sizes and show a combination of measures that preclude an analysis of the effect of that particular single measure. That's the end of the quote. They go on to look at different unconvincing studies and case series with and without bicarbonate. For those interested in more specifics, read it with gusto. So many of you who are trained like me to titrate bicarbonate administration to a urine pH of 6.5 or higher to prevent the breakdown of myoglobin into more toxic compounds, well, the times they are changing. The use of mannitol or diuretics is also controversial and far from clear. Probably not a great idea to use diuretics before you resuscitate with adequate fluid volume, which can be 10 liters or more. If the patient gets volume overloaded or has hyperkalemia, a little Lasix may be helpful. As far as flushing out the kidneys with Lasix, that's a bit more disputable, though some have recommended it. I'll need some more proof on that before I engage in that. Remember my podcast on contrast-induced nephropathy, where it turned out to be a bust when diuretics were also tried in an attempt to flush out the contrast? Perhaps the same thing will be 
found when they try and flush out myoglobin. Electrolyte abnormalities are a big concern with rhabdo and can be the trigger of a fatal event. Initially checking the calcium and potassium more than once a day is reasonable for many patients. Hyperkalemia can be a really big problem because the potassium can rise fast with major cellular breakdown. Sometimes it's so severe that hemodialysis is needed if other measures are failing to drop the potassium levels adequately. Hemodialysis is always a better option than cardiac arrest. All kinds of other electrolyte problems can occur. Hypocalcemia, again, can be worsened by adding bicarbonate to IV fluids. So if the calcium is dropping, it may be best to take the bicarbonate out of the fluids as metabolic alkalosis can worsen hypocalcemia. What's interesting is that most recommend against correcting hypocalcemia unless it is causing symptoms. Why is that? After the initial hypocalcemia that happens, partly because of the calcium deposits into the damaged muscle, there can be a rebound hypocalcemia calcemia when the calcium is released in the recovery phase. Particularly in combination with other factors like hyperparathyroidism temporarily occurring since PTH is also elevated due to the body's attempt to try and increase calcium, it would be a bummer to avoid pigment nephropathy only to then get hypercalcemic nephropathy. Now, remember about the life-threatening hyperkalemia we must worry about. And if you need to protect the heart with calcium, go ahead and do it. And later we can worry about the hypercalcemia if it occurs. The same can be said for other signs of hypocalcemia that also do need treatment like tetany or paresthesias. Some add allopurinol for uric acid climbing, as it often does. I think treating hyperuricemia does seem logical. Hyperphosphatemia occurs and can also contribute to a metabolic acidosis. Since hypophosphatemia can actually be an etiology of rhabdo, such as in alcoholics, hypophosphatemia can be tricky to identify in the actual setting of acute muscle breakdown, since suddenly all the phosphate is released when the injured muscle cells release their contents, which includes the release of phosphorus. Therefore, if you can't identify a cause of rhabdo, don't rule out low phosphate levels as an etiology just because a muscle breakdown has temporarily caused an elevated level of phosphorus. Some say love is a temporary insanity cured by marriage, just as others say hyperphosphatemia is a temporary condition that resolves with the resolution of rhabdomyolysis. I do use much better similes and metaphors than that in my fiction writing. And speaking of writing, to give proper credit, the quote saying, Love is a temporary insanity cured by marriage, was by the writer Ambrose Bierce. Remember to read habitually. It's nutritious for the mind. And that's the end of the advice I will dish out for now. You've been listening to the Hospital Medicine Podcast with Dr. Gil Parat. Thank you for all those who have left reviews and clicked star ratings on iTunes. I really appreciate it. Have a great day.